you have your Bibles with you, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I don't know about you, but I kind of like this all meeting together one service. You guys having a good time? Yeah, yeah, I know it's a little bit crowded, but it puts, puts a little energy in the room. It gives us an opportunity to really uh, rub shoulders with the, our whole body here with us in the summer. Now, obviously, when the, when the college starts back, we have about another hundred or so students who sometimes show up here. So we're going to go back to two services. But uh, we just decided maybe towards the end of the summer, we could all come together and have a good time. So I appreciate you guys uh, packing it in uh, this morning. And we're excited about getting back to the study of Ephesians. And so this morning, I've entitled the message as God's Growth plan for the church. And really, this is part one of a three-part series that we'll be doing here over Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. God's growth plan for the church. Look at verse 11. Let's read the whole passage together, even though this morning we'll only cover verse 11. Paul writes this to the church of Ephesus, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers... To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the joy of bowing before you, the great God and Father of all. And this morning, we submit this time to you that you would teach us how you want to grow your church. Thank you for the clear instruction of your word. Allow us to learn much so that we might grow much, so that we might be satisfied much in God. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, all kinds of churches have tried all kinds of things in order to make their church grow. Towards the end of the 20th century, we saw the unprecedented growth of the megachurches like the world has never seen. Churches that began to move away from the purity of the gospel as the main attraction and began to move to pragmatic experiments that would try to attract people to their church. One church decided to open up their services with a new kind of call to worship. Instead of a familiar hymn or maybe a new worship song, this well-known church opened up to the popular TV show theme song of Friends. Another church made it their goal to interview a different celebrity almost every week and discuss things, you know, like the kind of things you would hear maybe on The Tonight Show. Still, another church hosted a motocross competition on a Sunday morning in the main sanctuary for some high-flying entertainment. Well, is this how we are to grow the church? Is this what we are to be about? I mean, what is the most effective way for God to grow his church? 
Well, there's even one uh, website that tries to discuss this, and it's a church growth website. There's actually lots of them there on the internet. But this one author came up with five of the most important principles in church growth. You want to hear them? Number one, he said, outreach is the priority. And so in many ways, I appreciate that statement. We are here to glorify God and to reach out. But I think the question really more is, well, how? How do we reach out to others in our community? The second principle that uh, he said was that social networks are the vehicle. Now, I'm all for social media, and I'm also for building relationships in the community, but I'm not necessarily sure if that, if that lists that as the main way to grow your church. Here's where it starts to get a little worse. Number three, felt needs are the connecting point. The author writes this, when your church speaks to unreached people's felt needs, you will get a hearing. Because now your message is, from their point of view, relevant. Number four, relationships are the glue. What is the primary ingredient that keeps people active in church, he asked? The research is conclusive. The primary element that brings people to church and keeps them there, according to this author, is relationships. According to one study, new members who stay beyond their first year make an average of seven new friends in the church versus two for the dropouts. Put it simply, if people have friends in the church, they will stay, and if they don't, they won't. Friendships develop when people share things in common, such as a common age and common interest within a family status. Pretty sad to think that that would be the most common thing. I think some of us can realize, hey, appreciate the fact that you want to reach out with social networking. Appreciate the fact that you want to build relationships and you do want to talk to people where they are. But there's a whole difference in a philosophy of ministry of starting with the person versus starting with the gospel. And this is the fifth one that he mentions here. Uh, well, Well, first of all, he also said this, being a relational matchmaker is really what our goal is while we're at church. So instead of setting up people for getting married, you're setting up different people and relationships so that they'll stick in your church and stay around for a long time. And then number five, the fifth thing he mentions is this, transitions provide opportunity. And this one was all about growing your church by connecting with others through major transitions in their life. Maybe it's through a wedding or through a funeral or through a, a child who graduates and goes to college. And again, it's one thing to, to you know, these, these church growth principles, if you will, aren't all bad. They're just not biblical. It, they just don't really measure up to God's plan for growing the church. Now, at Placerita, we do want to grow. Okay, it's not as though as if we want to shrink and get smaller or just be stagnant with zero growth at all. But a few things uh, that we need to keep in mind as we talk about church growth. And the first is, is that church growth isn't just talking about numerically. Our goal is not just to pack more people in, pack more people in, pack more people in. Our goal really starts with exalting God to lift high the name of Jesus Christ and allow all those who come to this place to be enamored and to be attracted to the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so we want this church to grow, but not just in a numerical way. Far more important to your pastor 
and to the elders of this church is that we would grow in a spiritual way, that each one of us would grow deeper in our love for Christ, that each one of us would grow deeper in our heartfelt affection for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would practice the one another. As one famous pastor said, you take care of the depth of your church and let God take care of the breadth of your church. And so our desire, our goal is just to grow deeper, to grow deeper in God's word. And so this morning, I'm not here to give you a couple of trinkets or a couple of ideas or a couple of pragmatic ways to grow this church. I'm here instead this morning to do my best to represent what I believe is God's growth plan for the church. And so starting this morning and for the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at God's growth plan for the church, starting with this morning, number one, the gifting of leadership. Then we'll look at number two next week, the equipping of the saints. And then our third time together, we'll talk about the building up of the body, all from verses 11 through 16. So look again at at chapter four. You're already there in verse 11. Paul writes this. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, And teachers. Now, last time we were together in the book of Ephesians a few weeks ago, we took a great time to look at verses 7 and 8. So skip back up to verses 7 and 8 where we read, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we talked about how each one of you has a special gift by which Christ has given to you individually that we would join together corporately in order to utilize these gifts. Verse 8 says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. We talked last time again about how the gifts that Christ gave to men were spiritual gifts. And there's several different lists of spiritual gifts in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12, here in Ephesians 4.11, 1 Peter 4.11. And we talked about how these different gifts are given to each to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gives these gifts to us so that we can grow and that we can serve the Lord by serving one another. Now that we have been reminded a little bit of that in verse 11, now what he's saying is not only has Christ given spiritual gifts to each believer, but he's also given spiritual gifted people to his church. So he's given every believer a spiritual gift, but he's also given every church a gift. And in this passage, he's talking about these four gifted categories by which Christ gives to the church. And so let's look at these four gifted categories together. Number one is this. He's given some who are to be apostles. He's given some who are to be apostles. And so the question obviously comes up, what is an apostle? Are apostles still active today? How do you qualify to be considered to be a true apostle? Well, if I could just give a short definition, I would say apostles were men who were directly commissioned by the Lord to preach the word and to plant churches. And so they were men given to the church that they would be commissioned by Christ in order to preach the word and to plant churches. Let me give you six characteristics of an apostle, which kind of fleshes out that definition with a little bit more uh, detail. The first one would be this. An apostle would have been one who has seen the risen Christ. An apostle would have, again, been one who has seen the risen Christ. Now, this morning is going to be a little bit more like a Bible study. So you're going to be ready, if you will, to turn to a lot of passages so we can see these four offices of the early church in in clarity. So turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. 
Acts chapter 1, 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now that's speaking, if you will, of, of the place in scripture where uh, Judas was uh, no longer around. Remember, he betrayed Christ. He went out and hung himself. So we're down from, from 12 apostles down to 11. And so they said, hey, we've got to find another apostle. But notice the qualification. The, the next apostle to uh, replace Judas has to be one of these men must become a witness to his resurrection. And so this is pretty much a given that each one of these apostles would have been a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Each one of the 12, or more specifically, uh, the 12 uh, apostles, you know, we think of them as the 12 disciples, but think also them more accurately as the 12 apostles, had seen the risen Christ. Each one of them had seen the risen Christ, and there was that one rogue apostle that we just mentioned, Judas, and that's why in this text in 122, speaking of Matthias, who was going to be a replacement to Judas, served as that twelfth apostle because he had seen the risen Christ. And not only that, but in Acts chapter 9, you know the story of Saul, who was on the road to Damascus, and he saw the Lord Jesus in a bright light, and he became an apostle as well. And so the question may be asked, well, how many apostles were there? Well, there were 12 minus Judas, add Matthias in Judas's place, and then you add the apostle Paul. And so I would say 13. Some would say, well, technically there were 14, but Judas was replaced with Matthias. So that'll just kind of keep it nice and 12. And then you think about the one extra, if you will, the one with an untimely birth was Paul, who, who became that 13th Apostle. Now notice again that all of these men had seen the risen Christ. Listen, just listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 9. Then he appeared to James, speaking of the Lord Jesus. Then to all the apostles. We read this already this morning. Last of all, to one untimely born, he also, or he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so we're talking again about Saul, who became Paul, who Jesus Christ himself made an appearance to him. And so the first characteristic of being an apostle is that you had to have seen the risen Christ. The second characteristic of an apostle would be this, that an apostle has been commissioned by Christ an apostle has been commissioned by Christ. Not only had the apostles seen Christ, they had been commissioned by him. Now, the word apostle simply means messenger. It could be translated as delegate or as sent one or sent out ones. And so the apostles were chosen by Christ and sent out by him to do the work of the gospel. And for the most part, they were originally sent to the Jewish people. But Paul was uniquely commissioned by Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles. In fact, he mentions that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And so what made the apostles special? Well, number one, they had seen the risen Christ. But not only that, they were particularly and specifically chosen by Christ and commissioned by Christ to do the gospel ministry. 
The third characteristic of the apostles would be this. The apostles would have been those who had been called the foundation of the church. Literally being referred to the apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church. We've looked at this already, but look back in Ephesians 2. Excuse me, Ephesians 2, verses 19 and 20. We read this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And we talked about how in that passage that that could be referring to the teaching of the apostles and prophets, which was equal to what Christ was saying, him himself, Jesus himself being the way, the truth, and the life. And so whether you want to see it as their teaching or as actually their office themselves, there's no doubt that Jesus is the main cornerstone and foundation, the teaching of the apostles and prophets in line with who Christ is became foundational and necessary for the beginning of the early church. And one of the main responsibilities of the apostle was to plant churches. They were to go around as those who were sent out by Christ to take this message of the gospel into different contexts of Asia Minor and to plant churches. And when they were to plant churches, they were also there to disciple men. And then after they discipled and raised up some godly leadership, then then the apostles would appoint leaders over the local church. In fact, turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, this is exactly what happens on the island of Crete, as we know that Paul addresses this letter to Titus. In Titus 1, 4 and 5, we read this, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. And so we have an apostle who's writing to Titus, who's his disciple in the faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so we read from that passage that Paul had spent some time there with him, had probably talked with him about various men who would become elders in that local church there in Crete so that Titus would do that work that God had called him to and that Paul had specifically as an apostle helped appoint him to do. Well, let's move on to our fourth characteristic of an apostle. It would be this. An apostle is one who has received divine revelation. So an apostle had received divine revelation. And this one and the next one kind of go hand in hand. So let's skip on to E as well. An apostle is one who has uh, been considered as a messenger who declares the revelation of God's word. So how do you know if you're an apostle? Again, an apostle received divine revelation from God. A disciple also or an apostle also dispensed that divine revelation as a messenger, as one who would teach others what they themselves had seen. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, just the chapter before when we read this, Ephesians 3, 4 and 5. When you read this, Paul writes, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now remember when we were in that section in chapter 3, we talked about this mystery about Jesus was not understood fully in the Old Testament. And Paul didn't figure it out. Somebody, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, through the power 
and the revelatory unction of the Holy Spirit revealed to Paul the divine witness of Christ himself. And what we see is that Paul then begins to perceive this insight of the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of man in other generations, verse 5, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You see there? That revelation is made known, divine revelation to the apostles to which Paul is writing this book as a, as a dispensing agent of giving out to the church that which he has received. In fact, look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so this was part of the responsibility that he had. He had been given divine revelation in order to preach this divine revelation to the churches that he planted all around Asia Minor. And then the last one that we have here in order to be classified as an apostle in the New Testament would have been this. An apostle is one who has performed miracles. One who has performed miracles. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, just so you can see this important verse here. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 talked about this. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so he's writing there in in, in Corinthians about as opposed to some of the false apostles who claim to have heard things from God, who claim some of them to have some ecstatic speech, which wasn't actually from God. You did have in 1 Corinthians prophets of God, those who spoke in tongues from God the right way, but you also had some who were doing it the wrong way, those who were doing it outside of God's clear revelation. And so he's saying, hey, part of what marks the apostle is these, these bad boys are doing miracles. That's what they're doing. They're up to doing healings and they're doing all kinds of things. These guys are doing authentic miracles, which was authenticating their uh, right to be uh, claiming to be both uh, a messenger and bringing the right message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we get caught into thinking, well, I, well, I know Jesus did a lot of miracles, and I know that uh, that uh, Peter did a lot of miracles. We read a lot about a, a lot about miracles in in, uh, in the first part of book Acts. But where did Paul do miracles? Well, remember. In Acts chapter 19, we looked at this verse about a year ago, but we talked about this church, Ephesus, that Paul planted in Acts 19. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So yes, Paul himself was also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as an apostle to the Gentiles, was also performing. Again, it was God's power in him, but he still is given the responsibility of disseminating the power of God doing miracles. And so these are some of the the characteristics that we see in the New Testament about what it means to be an apostle. So now the question arises, are apostles for the church today? Well, you need to know that in addition to these apostles that we just have been talking about with these six characteristics, what we sometimes call an apostle with a capital A, you also have in the New Testament apostles with a lowercase a, such as James, Barnabas, Andronicus, and Junius, and possibly even Silas and Timothy and Apollos, which in other various passages are referred to as an apostle as well. 
But I believe that this later group, this group of the smaller, lowercase a, served as messengers of the gospel, but they did not fulfill the office of an apostle, as did the twelve, and as did Paul. And the reason for the difference is, is while they were referred to as apostles, they had not done everything that the twelve had done. Not every, each and every one of those had, had, had the same credentials that the initial group, capital A, apostles, uh, were, were, were credentialed by. And so in order to uh, avoid utter confusion and to better track with the transition from apostles and prophets to evangelists and pastor teachers, I believe that it's best to reserve the, the usage of the word apostle for those who actually fulfilled that office, namely those 13 men that we just named. Now, if somebody else in the church were to say, hey, I'm an apostle, I'm a sent one, and they view it as a lowercase a it's not, not a big deal, right? I don't think that's a big deal uh, because the Bible does use it that way. I just think it can be a little bit confusing. And so for the most part, when we speak of apostles, or you just kind of hear the word apostle, or I'm preaching on apostle, or in 411, when he says the apostles, I think he's referring to that main group, that main section, those first 13 men who had those kind of credentials in order to accomplish the work of God here on this earth. Now, that's the first group. The apostles, the second group of gifted men that Christ gave to the church are what we call the prophets, right? That's what what Paul calls the prophets, some who are to be as prophets. And so let's look in a similar way at some of these characteristics of the prophets of the early church. The first would be this. You just need to know that the Bible does say that they are second to the apostles, that the prophets are second to the apostles. Look at First uh, Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28 with me, if you will. First Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28. Here we read this. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. And so there in that verse, we kind of read a little bit of an order here. And it's thought by some that this is just simply a chronological order. There were apostles before there were prophets. I mean, there were Old Testament prophets, if you will. But in the New Testament, it kind of starts with this emphasis on these apostles doing the apostolic ministry of planting these churches. And then part of their, uh, part of their work begins to overflow into this new office now, not of an Old Testament prophet, but of a New Testament prophet. And it doesn't mean that prophets are not as important. It doesn't mean that they're kind of second-tier Christians or just have a second gift any more than it means that being a teacher or a miracle worker or healing or having the gift of helping or administrating is some kind of second-class gift. It just simply means that they're different. Remember, we're created equal before God in our value and our dignity as men and women and as a variety of various gifts as Christians, but we all need to stick within the role that God has assigned to us. And so for these prophets, they, they weren't apostles They weren't necessarily eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. All of them weren't necessarily doing miracles, but they were a fantastic complement to the apostles, especially in the earlier church. And so there were apostles first and then prophets. The second thing you need to know about prophets this morning is that prophets did speak the divine revelation of God. And so in order to be classified as a prophet, they did also receive and speak this divine revelation of God. And again, 
We looked at Ephesians 2.20 about how the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So not only were the apostles doing the talking in planting this new church in Ephesus and all over the world, but the prophets were also their complements doing the work of the ministry of speaking God's divine revelation to God's church. In fact, we can almost assume that as well from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. You're familiar with this passage where Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, your translation may say, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge and have not faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And so part of the understanding of the gifted offices of the church of first Corinthians were that Paul helped plant the church as an apostle. Prophets helped minister in the church, but then he begins to emphasize here that this prophet may have also had a gift of the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge in order to be able to speak specifically to and address certain things that were going on in that local church. Let's move on to a third characteristic of a prophet would have been this. Prophets were those who would be striving to build up, encourage, and console the body. So the prophets were those who were building up encouraging and consoling the body. You're starting to kind of already see it just a little bit. Apostles were planting and they were also appointing people to serve there. The prophets had a little bit more of a localized ministry to go a little bit further and deeper there in that local church. Look at 1 Corinthians again, 14, starting in verse 1, says this about the prophets that that, that, uh, pursue love, earnestly desire the, the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And so what we're seeing here is that these prophets are called to be speaking, to be encouraging, and specifically here, they're to, they're to be upbuilding, they're to be giving encouragement, and they're to be giving comfort or consolation to God's people. These were the ones who were really ministering in a very specific way at that local body, which is really what our next one is about, speaking still of prophets. A fourth characteristic would be that they seem to have worked within that local congregation. They seem to have uh, within that local congregation. Again, their, their point of their gift was not to edify themselves, as we just read in First Corinthians, but rather to edify the body. And the way to edify the body was to be preachers and proclaimers of God's truth to God's people so that they could have clear instruction. Understand the Bible, the canon was not completed, which is why these gifts were so alive and so well used in the New Testament, because there may have been questions that came up. Well, can we do this? Well, what about this? Well, what does the Bible say? Well, yeah, the Bible's not complete. So we need an apostle or a prophet to speak and address these issues, which we should hold on par with scripture 
because it was scripture. Much of what they said and was written down for us to record today came from that divine revelation from these apostles and prophets. And again, when you look at it, it seems logical that the apostles had a little bit more of the big picture view of planting churches and moving from church to church as we trace through Paul's missionary journeys and things like that, while the prophets were more locally uh, uh, serving and, and given to a specific church. Uh, that, that, uh, that the church of, of Antioch could serve as an example. Uh, notice in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, talking about the church of Antioch, which was the home base where Paul went out to his missionary journeys. It's where uh, Christians were first called Christians there. And at Antioch, we read this in Acts 13, 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. It's interesting there. This could be a different Saul, some commentators say. Some say this was actually Paul. But instead of being referred to as a apostle there in the church of Antioch, he was rather kind of cupped in with this, this idea of prophet and teacher. And so that's just where some would say, hey, it looks like we're starting to move a little bit from this uh, apostle-type uh, view to setting up more prophets and setting up more teachers. We've already read about in Crete, setting up elders to prepare the church for the future. Because here's the deal. I'm kind of getting to it already. The apostles aren't going to be around forever. So if they don't do their work well, if they don't establish other folks to help them grow and flourish and continue, then the church, in a sense, could die out. Now, we know the church would not die out because Christ had already taught the gates of hell would not prevail. His mission will be accomplished, but he's using these gifted men, these apostles and these prophets to grow his church. Let me give you a fifth characteristic of prophets would have been this. Number five, or E there in your outline, sometimes these prophets spoke practical, direct revelation for the church. It wasn't always just earth-shattering doctrine that they would talk about. Sometimes it could be something very practical for a local church. For example, listen to Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, every one of them according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So what's going on here? Well, this one prophet named Agabus gave a foretelling of this drought that would come and, and, and food would be scarce. And so in response to that, those local disciples determined to do the best they could to gather food and send it there to their brothers living in Judea. So just to show again how God was caring for his church, sometimes just in a practical way through these prophets. And then lastly, with prophets, we see this, that prophets submitted their messages to be judged by other prophets. So they always were being held accountable. They were submitting what they taught to be judged by other prophets. 1 Corinthians 14, 31 through 33. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of 
peace. And so we see there that the prophets would utter what they would say, but it was to be judged by the prophets and ultimately by the apostles to deem whether or not what they said was true. And let me just say two more things about prophets before we move on. In the New Testament, a woman could be considered as a prophetess. Two examples would be Anna, the prophetess. Remember in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, there was the prophetess Anna, the daughter uh, uh, who was there advanced in years. Had, had, her husband had died and she was walking around uh, the temple worshiping and fasting and praying day and night. She is uh, declared as a prophetess. Doesn't mean that she had the office of prophet in the early church, but she was serving rather as a gifted prophetess. Not only was there Anna, there was also the four daughters of Philip. And so in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, we read about how, uh, basically in verse, uh, Acts 21, 8 and 9, how Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So what are we to think about that? Well, women apparently could have been gifted to utter some prophecy to some degree in the local church. Now, we could talk about, was it a public ministry preaching over a mixed group of men and women? Probably not. But was it an encouragement ministry of possibly to other women and children or in some other maybe informal context? God used their prophecies to encourage the body? Absolutely possible to be seen in that way. The second thing I want to say about prophets is this. Like the apostles, the office of prophet ceased with the completion of the New Testament. And again, this is where it gets a little dicey to like, well, are apostles and are prophets for today? Well, according to these credentials that we've listed from the New Testament, our view as an elder team and as, as a church, what's kind of written down in our doctrinal statement is that these, these gifts existed beautifully and wonderfully in the, in the early church, but they eventually passed away and gave way to something else. Now, I don't have time this morning to preach a whole sermon on, on, on uh, cessationism, okay? So uh, you just have to kind of bear with me a little bit, but we take that view from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 8, 9, and 10, when it talks about prophecy ceasing, tongues are prophecies passing away, tongues ceasing, knowledge passing away, but when the perfect comes, the impartial is done away with. And so when the Bible was completed, it was almost as if these gifts of apostleship and prophecy were no longer needed because these two categories gave way into these next two categories. And so the next two categories we're going to be looking at is going to be evangelists and pastor teachers. And what I'm saying is, in some ways, the evangelist of today, which you could even look at modern missionaries as modern-day evangelists. So when I say evangelist, don't think the guy with gray hair on TV asking for your money. Okay? When I say evangelist, think about the guy who's soul winning out in this culture or in a foreign culture who's winning people to Christ. And so the evangelist in many ways, it's as if the gift of apostleship in many ways could be seen transitioning to evangelists planting churches, while the gift of prophets in the New Testament could be have been picked up to some degree by pastor teachers in the New Testament. So let's look at this third group of Christ's gifts to the church, the evangelist. Here's some characteristics of the evangelist. They were those who would proclaim the good news. That's the work of evangelists ultimately, is that they would proclaim good news. Now the word evangelist is actually only used three times in the Bible. It's used here in 411. The second place it's used, it's used in Acts 21.8 to refer to Philip the evangelist. 
And so that's the second place it's used, specifically pointing at this person, Philip, who, oh, by the way, was also in the office of being a deacon, who in Acts chapter 8, the story of Philip is where he was in Samaria giving the gospel. Then he was led down to the southern part of Jerusalem toward Gaza, which is a pretty exciting place right now, um, giving the, the gospel, and he witnessed to the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that? He, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading out of Isaiah, doesn't know who Isaiah is talking about, himself or someone else. God uses this gifted evangelist, Philip, to give him the gospel. The, the, the uh, eunuch gets saved. Uh, he baptizes him right there. And so that's showing the work of an evangelist in action. Proclaiming God's truth. Another uh, function of the evangelist would be this: persevere in the truth. The, the the evangelist was to not only proclaim it, but to persevere in it. And I say that because in Second Timothy chapter four, verses one through five, we read about how Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And so the idea is Timothy was actually a preacher, a pastor teacher who Paul had appointed to work in the church of Ephesus. But Timothy also was called to do the work of an evangelist, which is a reminder in some ways, we could move on to number three, that every Christian should be a witness. Every Christian should be a witness. While there's Philip the evangelist, while we know that God gifts the church with apostles, prophets, and evangelists, in many ways, we should just acknowledge this morning that every Christian should be the evangelist in, in, in their own sphere of influence, through their own personality and ability. We know this from verses like Acts 1-8, that you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so you this morning, if you're sitting here thinking, okay, what are my gifts? What am I supposed to be doing? So what we've learned so far is you don't have to worry about being an apostle. Okay? You don't have to worry this morning about being a prophet in the sense of the New Testament. But if you're here this morning, you need to consider, you know what, am I an evangelist? I mean, we all know well-known evangelists like Billy Graham and Louis Palau and Ben Candy and, uh, and others uh, that we love and see doing a great work of evangelism. But to some degree, we're all called to do the work of evangelist, to be that witness. It's the same thing in 1 Peter 3.15, that we're always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks the, the reason for the hope that is within you and to do that with gentleness and respect. And so these evangelists in the early church were especially gifted but as we've already seen in a couple of places, uh, that, that we ought to desire all the gifts. And so the idea is that in the early church and even today, all the gifts that are still in function, we ought to be desiring them, employing them, using them, so that we together can link arm in arm to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this moves us to our fourth uh, category this morning. Number four, some who are to be pastors and teachers. Some who are to be pastors and teachers. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point simply because we've talked about it a ton. We're going to be doing a special message on what it means to be an elder in about a month, okay? So for this morning, just kind of get the big picture, if you will. Some are called to be pastors and teachers. Let me say this. There is a special emphasis, that's your next blank, on the pastor-teacher. There's a special emphasis here. We could get into a long debate as to whether or not this is one office or two offices. That's the big debate. If you go to any Bible college or seminary, oh, is pastor teacher the same man or is it two different people? Is it a pastor and a teacher? Is it a pastor teacher? Well, uh, just by looking at the grammar, you can know this morning that whatever your view on that is, there is definitely a close 
association. I mean, again, just look at verse 11. He says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Notice he doesn't say the shepherds and the teachers. And so the idea is there's one article that governs these two nouns. Now, these two nouns are both plural, which kind of upsets a little bit that Greek grammar rule called the Granville Sharp rule that says basically if you have two singular nouns separated by chi and governed by one article, then it means one and the same. The problem is these are not singular nouns. These are plural nouns. And so what we can say for sure is while it may not fit everything grammatically perfectly, that's why there's a big debate on this verse, there is a close association between the role and function of a pastor teacher, a shepherd teacher. And what we're talking about here is that these two gifts seem to always go together. They just seem to always go together. Uh, part of the reason we could say that is, is that the, uh, the idea is that you can't really be a pastor if you're not teaching. I mean, what pastor is there who's shepherding the flock of God, who's not proclaiming to the flock the word of God? And so it's a given that any shepherd would also be gifted to some degree with the ability to teach. But there are places in the New Testament where it lists teacher as a separate gift to the pastor. We read one of them already, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, where we said he appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And so it is possible that someone could be a gifted teacher and able to communicate God's word, but not actually serving in the office of an elder. And really what pastor or, or shepherd teacher or pastor teachers, we probably have heard it more often, is referring to is that office of an elder. And so let's talk here for just a moment about the role and function of an elder. And this will just be a little preview. Again, I said I've got a whole message about what it means, what it looks like to be an elder, to serve as an elder as we move forward here in, in our church, in some of our church polity about what we're thinking about and talking about as far as an elder-led church. And so let me just give you this again by way of introduction, and we'll get more into this specifically uh, in, in about a month, okay? So here we have a couple of characteristics. Number one of an elder, the function is to determine church polity to determine church polity. And there in Acts chapter 15, it was the apostles and the elders uh, together with the whole church who were choosing men that they were going to send to Paul while he was serving in Antioch. And so they were just trying to kind of govern the personnel, if you will, of what was going on in the local church. Number two, the function of a pastor elder was to oversee all the affairs of the church. And here in Acts 20, 28, as Paul is talking to the elders of Ephesus, when he was in Miletus on his way to Rome, he said basically that these elders needed to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. And so the idea is that a pastor elder should oversee the affairs of the local church. Number three, a pastor elder should ordain other leaders as is appropriate. And in that passage in First Timothy, we see him say basically, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so it was the job of a prophet teacher to reproduce themselves in the local church. Number four to rule, preach, and teach the body. So sometimes people say, well, where, where in the Bible does it say elder rule anyway? 
Well, this would be the verse I'd take up to. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And there we see again preaching and teaching being coupled together uh, as, as, as possibly part of the same office. But the idea is that an elder is to, to govern, to rule. This doesn't mean in a tyrannical way, but in a gracious, uh, but in a wise way that they would lead uh, Christ's body, the local church. More about that in a month. Number five, we're talking about shepherd teachers, pastor teachers are also to exhort believers and to refute error. I mean, if nothing else, this is a basic function of all elders, whether it's the preaching elder or just serving on the board, if you will, of elders, that he's got to be able to exhort believers and refute error. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And then number six, a pastor teacher should be able to shepherd the flock of God while setting an example. And that passage in First Peter is pretty familiar to us, that I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock. And later he says that you're to, to be an example to the flock. And so these roles of evangelists, i.e. missionary, or all of us being a witness. And these roles of pastor-teacher are clearly still going on today as the extenuation of Christ's gifts to the church. Now, let me give you just a couple of take-home points to chew on this afternoon. First would be this. What can you learn from and appreciate about the apostles and prophets of the early church? As you think about apostle and prophet, I think you just... When I look at the list of their credentials... It just really helps me appreciate even more, man, they've seen the risen Christ. And so it makes me want to listen more carefully to what is taught and, and what is discussed in God's word about this office of apostle and prophet. Now, God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we not, not need to be enamored by men this morning. We don't worship the apostles and prophets, but Christ alone. But I think we should just kind of raise the bar. It makes me uncomfortable when I hear people saying, well, I know Paul said such and such, but I think this. I'm like, whoa, whoa, time out. Like, Paul was an apostle. I mean, who are you to say, I know he said such and such. This would be in liberal camps. But I really think this, we got to raise our appreciation for these gifted men that Christ gave to the church. Number two, what can you learn from the evangelists and how can you be a better witness for Christ in your sphere of influence? I mean, when you think about the fact that he told Timothy, and I would say that it would be the general idea that as Christians, we're all a witness for Christ. And so when you think about the word evangelist, what I'm saying is don't distance yourself from that. Don't say, oh, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not an evangelist. I don't talk to anybody. Uh, Rather be like, you know what? I don't know if that's my gift, but man, I want to learn and grow how to be a better witness for Christ. And I want to be available to almighty God to share the gospel with my neighbors and with my family and with my coworkers, because I'm called in a sense to do the work of an evangelist. And so let me just ask you this morning, how's your work going? Because I'm afraid a lot of us are like, well, I'm not gifted. There's no opportunity. I guess I'll just sit here and I'll just, just be me, me and mine. And the idea is, no, doing an, being an evangelist is a work. It takes effort to get out of your comfort zone, to have people into your home, to have that conversation at work with somebody who, who you're not sure where they said. It takes work to be an evangelist. Certainly, we all want to grow in being a better witness 
for Christ. And then lastly, what can you learn from the emphasis of the pastor teacher? And how can you either aspire to this responsibility or benefit from the labor of your shepherds? What I'm saying is this. You guys know we have the master's college and seminary right here. Many men in this audience ought to be, in a good way, aspiring to the office of a pastor teacher. And I want to commend you this morning. If you're in seminary or you're in Bible college or you aspire as a lay man to be an elder here at the local church, that's an awesome calling and a fantastic desire that God has placed in your life. And so you need to be listening carefully. Our elders need to be listening carefully to what is it that God's called me to. I want to make sure that I'm understanding from God's word what it means to be a shepherd and how I can effectively teach God's word. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to all, all elders are teachers from, from up front. They, they could, but it certainly means that in various contexts, they're able to teach the word and to refute error. And so the idea is that maybe you're here this morning and you're aspiring to that, or maybe you're here this morning and you're like, nope, not going to be an elder, don't care to be an elder. Uh, so you know what? How can I benefit from that? How can I praise God for the elders that God has given this church to help shepherd my soul? How can I follow them as they follow Christ? How can I be a blessing to them? How can I encourage them? How can I come alongside them? Get this. How can I hold them accountable? It's not as if the elders of this church are perfect or beyond the, the uh, beyond sin. So we need your help as we seek to lead you well. And we also need you to follow as God has called us to submit to God's plan for the church. And so how is God going to grow his church? Is he going to do it through gimmicks? Is he going to do it through us serving the best food or the nicest coffee or doing the nicest show in town? That's one, one church for, where I was in Texas used to say, come to such and such church, the best show in town. You know, is that what God's called us to do? I, I don't think so. I think God has given us his growth plan for the church. And it starts with God giving gifted men to lead his church. Stay with us for the next couple of weeks as we look at other roles and responsibilities you have, because next week you're going to be highlighted in a much more intimate way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word, which is sufficient for all that we need for life and for godliness. And Lord, it is such a good day for us to look and examine carefully these various gifted categories of people that you've given to your church. I pray, God, that you would continue to unite us and to keep us humble as we desire this church to be led by Jesus Christ as the head of the church. And as Christ has given gifted men to this church, I pray that we would be able to all together respond to your word and to follow your growth plan for this church. God, help us as we discuss some of these issues today and with amongst ourselves. God, I pray it wouldn't be a time for controversy or uh, bickering and debating on any large-scale scheme, but rather refining each other, learning more about what your word teaches so that we could be the church, that here at Placerita, that you would grow us deep in a love for you and a love for your word and a love for each other and a love for the lost so that we would bring you glory and honor in how we live. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.